0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Jeff Vandermeer is a novelist, and I think if I could sum up his works in a word, the word might be lush. His books are usually surreal, sometimes scary. Often he transforms nature itself, creating new species, new histories, new mutations with visceral, sometimes magical descriptions. If you know his work, you're probably most familiar with Annihilation, part science fiction, part magic realism, part horror. It's set in a wildlife refuge in northern Florida. An alien presence has landed. As it settles into the land, it creates profound, disturbing changes in the plants, animals, and humans that enter the territory. He published the book in 2014. Four years later, it was turned into the movie of the same name, directed by Alex Garland and starring Natalie Portman and Gina Rodriguez. His latest book is called A Peculiar Peril. Like a lot of his work, it's fantastical and strange and kind of absurd. It's also very funny. Fans of Neil Gaiman or Terry Pratchett or even Douglas Adams will feel at home with it. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's a young reader you know. It's definitely a book teenagers can read as well. Anyway, my friend Jordan Morris was lucky enough to get to interview him. Jordan is a comedy screenwriter. He's also the co-host of one of my other podcasts, Jordan Jesse Gull. Anyway, let's get into it. Jordan Morris and Jeff Vandermeer.
2: Jeff Vandermeer, uh, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so your new book, A Peculiar Peril, is uh, it's aimed at young readers. Although I'll say it's very entertaining to certain thirty-eight-year-olds. Uh, <laughs> it made me wonder um, what kinds of books you were reading when you were the age that this book is pitched at. Well, I was—I
0: would say I was reading things like James Thurber's The Thirteen Clocks. And I would say there are other other books like that are things I remember because they are things when you go back to them as adults, you find other things to appreciate in them. And and so uh, they kind of change over time. Uh, And then also a lot of British classics, uh, which I can't even remember necessarily besides Beatrix. I mean, Beatrix Potter is maybe younger than this audience, but. Since there are so many talking animals in a peculiar peril, I, I did think of, of that a little bit. But, um, but I grew up in the Fiji Islands, and so until the age of nine, I mostly had British Commonwealth-type books. So it's not so much necessarily always influenced by what I was reading as a teenager, although it is, is a little bit, uh, but also things like Asterix and Tintin Comics and kind of the absurd misadventures in some of the things I was reading then. Um, there's a scene in Peculiar Apparel where two characters braid their beards because of a magic spell. The beards keep growing and they can't cut them. (laughs) And that's actually (laughs) an ode to Tintin. And then there's also things like the Dark is Rising uh, series, which I thought was a a really wonderful teen series that I read as a teenager. Uh, More recently, I've read stuff like uh, Rory Power's uh, Wilder Girls in in the YA genre, and I really enjoyed that.
2: Actually, this book, while I was reading it, really reminded me of the Hitchhiker's Guide series and kind of its sense of humor. Um, was that ever something that you gobbled up as a kid?
0: Oh, absolutely. I would say that's definitely something that I, I read as a teenager. And, and it is true that there is a particularly British sense of humor that I absorbed that I think comes out in this series, and not just because the main character grew up in this world where he was partly in Florida and partly in the UK, uh, yeah so so definitely that uh definitely the kind of absurd sense of humor which is something that you know is present in my other novels but not to this degree you know it's it's present in annihilation in the biologist having a, a conversation about whether something's a tunnel or a tower if you really think <laughs> about it it's a very absurd conversation right but it's not it's not the primary thing that you're you're encountering when you read. So it was really kind of nice to be able to show that side, which to this point has mostly been displayed, I think, for whatever reason on Twitter. So,
2: When you were a kid, um, was being a professional writer something that you dreamed about or did it come later? It, it was pretty
0: early on. Uh, when I was in Fiji, You know, my mother was a biological illustrator. My dad was a research chemist who was studying rhinoceros beetles. And so we were very invested in the natural world and i started keeping a bird watching list as we were going around various places for my dad's research and that eventually morphed into telling stories about birds <laughs> because <laughs> i began to get a little bored with just listing birds in my journal um, and and that coincided with encountering like Aesop's fables and stuff so i would retell those and kind of that became kind of a learning process for me because I would read the story, and then I would try to tell my own version from memory of the story. So that's how I began to learn how to how to write, and it was mostly through these these animal tales. And I think that also is something that kind of comes through in peculiar peril.
2: I'm really curious about growing up in Fiji. Um, hmm. You know, nature is a, a big part of your work, and it got me wondering about the kind of flora and fauna you were experiencing when you were growing up there.
0: Well, I mean, my mother would, there would be sea turtles on our front lawn because she was doing illustrations of them. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we were literally 10 minute walk from the beach in Suva. And we would go up into the mountains during the winter because it's a volcanic island and you would have a totally different terrain with kingfishers and just a light misting of snow for like half a day, (laughs) which is kind of unexpected in that, that setting. I felt like I was outdoors all the time. And, uh, and it was a very wild experience. And, and a lot of my fiction reflects that. It reflects things like getting lost on a reef at night when my dad was off doing something and, and almost walking out to sea as opposed to back to shore. Uh, so there's a lot of experiences like that that I consider have informed my writing.
2: In your writing, uh, nature is very beautiful, but it can also be very scary and deadly. You mentioned getting lost. Do you remember any other times as a kid where you were Scared of the natural world?
0: Well, I mean, there was one time in Kenya where uh, my dad decided he wanted to get close to these water buffalo, and they almost charged us. And I definitely,
2: yeah, that'll <laughs> do pretty it. Pretty scared. That'll do
0: it. Of that. <laughs> um, not so much as a child. Now, as an adult, I was once charged by a wild boar, and and that was that was pretty scary. But yeah. at the same time, once you're in a situation like that, time kind of slows down. You kind of take stock in a way that is actually happening very fast, but you don't realize it. And so, it's weird. It's like you realize afterwards you were scared, but you don't necessarily realize in the moment. And a lot of times also, you know, there's a difference between me and the protagonist. So, the biologist probably is the least scared of people in my books of nature, uh, but then also some of the weirdest things happen in that book. So there's people who are scared for the biologist, even though she thinks what she's looking at is really beautiful. So I find that this issue of scary versus non-scary is often something that that lies with the reader and not so much with me, because there's very little that I find scary except for cockroaches, which is something that I encountered as a child, uh, because there was a Fijian cockroach that would burrow into your ear at night. Wow. and So I would wake up to this crunching sound. <laughs>
2: it's a terrible thing to wake so, up to
0: exactly and and you know it was a tropical paradise but I also had allergies from the flowering trees and also asthma so there were days when I would wake up and I wasn't sure if I could breathe and I would hear this crunching sound <laughs> Oof. in my ears So I do have a very big phobia of cockroaches they were harmless they weren't doing anything they just they were just seeking shelter but still. So I try very hard to, to not have those usual prejudices against creatures just because of stereotypes about them. But it is true that, I, that Anne, uh, my wife, deals with the, the roaches that come into the house.
2: <laughs> so after you lived in Fiji, and I think I'm getting your timeline correct, is that you moved to Florida, where you still live now. And a lot of your stories, uh, including A Peculiar Peril, are set there, or at least part of it is set there. Tell me a little bit about Florida and what makes it fun to write about. Well, first of
0: all, we came back to Ithaca for two years in the middle of winter after Fiji, and that cured us of anything very northern. (laughs) So, Florida, I think, reminded us of Fiji a bit in that it is semi-tropical, even here in North Florida. And I think one thing that's really uh, amazing about this place is it is one of the hotspots of biodiversity. So, even though we're 10 minutes from the capital, we're in this house on the edge of a ravine that was scooped out during the last ice age and it's all fully wooded because you can't build down on the slope only around the lip of it and so we're 10 minutes from the capital and yet down in this ravine are raccoons possums box turtles uh all kinds of snakes and and lizards and so it's pretty amazing and this this is kind of what i've experienced the entire time I've, i've been in florida and that definitely influences you know well even like your relationship between the inside and the outside it kind of blurs a bit and then also how you perceive the natural world, and and there's less separation between yourself and the rest of the world in in that way, and, and I think that comes out in a peculiar peril. You know, I really wanted the talking animals, uh, some of which have personalities of some of the car- some of the animals in our yard, even though they're different animals, to not be the stereotypical things that you sometimes uh, see that just perpetuate ideas that are wrong about how animals might perceive things if they talked. (laughs) And then also the thing I like to do is I do like to take real places that I've lived in and use them in my books. So Jonathan, uh, this is not really a spoiler, but you find out at some point that uh, he grew up on the edge of one of these ravines in Florida. And so I basically just took our house and used it for some of the scenes. And that works out really nicely because it gives you a real, you know, it kind of imbues the character with a bit of autobiography.
2: In the uh, special thanks to your book Annihilation, you thank the St Mark's Florida Wildlife Refuge. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit more about that place, what it's like there, and how it inspired the writing
0: well, uh, you know we we first lived in Gainesville, Florida, and Paynes Prairie is amazing there and I was looking for a place when we moved up to when I moved up to Tallahassee that was similar and the St. Marks uh, National Wildlife Refuge is just this amazing refuge on the edge of the sea, so It goes from like this pine forest to black swamp to salt marshes to the beach and includes all these amazing ecosystems side by side that you wouldn't normally encounter in such a small space uh, comparatively. And I think what also really was amazing to me is that the first time I was there, I got lost. I decided I'm just going to bite off more than I can chew. And I'll do the longest, most remote trail here. And I'll, and (laughs) it's not usually the best idea. And uh, I did the 14 mile trail, not knowing that there was going to be a thunderstorm in the middle of it. And I got so totally turned around and lost my map that I had no idea where I was. And it was one of those things where, you know, I don't carry a phone usually uh, except sometimes a little phone that I can call for emergencies, but, (laughs) but nothing that would like have a map. And so, for, for a good 30 minutes, I had this experience that a lot of us don't really have anymore, which was I was totally lost. And I had hmm. no idea where I was. And I was in the middle of a thunderstorm. And there were a ton of very aggressive gators around, which usually doesn't bother me, but it was like in the middle of mating season. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> And i had also on this, this one also, this first time seen Wild Boar, even though they hadn't charged me, which kind of unnerved me, because they are really the biggest threat out there. And so I think that element of of the unknown and being lost like that really fed into my imagination and I think it's one reason why annihilation is set there and why it's been so inspirational because that first experience was so, so dynamic
2: as a as a proud floridian i was wondering if you were familiar with the florida man you know line of jokes <laughs> um the I, concept being
0: I am, and, and I understand, and I do find it humorous. I try not to buy into it because my theory is just that every other state has just as many boneheaded individuals. They just don't have a hashtag. <laughs> but it is also true that there are so many different Floridas, you know, like literally politically, socially, in other ways. And we have so many people coming in from out of state that change the dynamic of how things are that I think that does come into play to some degree. And I cannot deny uh, <laughs> that it does, it does sometimes, it, it's hard for me sometimes to, to, to defend <laughs> the state. <laughs> um, and one reason that I do is because we are still this wild place that, that is in danger from development and whatnot of going away. And there is so much uh, of value here, and, and so that, in all seriousness, is why I don't really play into that because I feel like then people miss the the other things that are great about the state. But but I, I do admit that that there 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 is a spark of something there that uh, that I really wish was a little less visible. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and also, if there was a hashtag Montana Man trend, <laughs> we might see some crazy stuff That's coming true. out of it's Montana. True. Yeah, nothing
0: against Montana, in of case I ever not. have to move there, but. <laughs>
1: We'll wrap up with Jeff Vandermeer in just a minute. Does he think a novel with a message can reach people? We'll hear more about that after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
2: I'm Guy Raz, and on NPR's How I Built This, how a simple splash of color accidentally launched Sandy Chilowich into a 40-year career as a designer, entrepreneur, and creator of the now-famous Chilowich placemat. Subscribe or listen now. I'm Bria Grant, an e-reader who loves spoilers and chocolate. And I'm Mallory O'Mara, a print book collector who will murder you if you spoil a book for me. And we're the hosts of Reading Glasses, a podcast
0: designed to help you read better. Over the past few years, we've figured out why people read.
2: Self-improvement. Escapism. To distract ourselves from the world burning down. And why they don't. Not enough time. Not knowing what to read. And being overwhelmed by the number
0: on their TBR list. And we're here to help you with that. We will help you conquer your TBR pile while probably adding a bunch of books to it. Reading glasses. Every week on
1: MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Jeff Vandermeer is a novelist. He wrote the acclaimed book Annihilation, which was turned into a film of the same name. His newest book is a fantasy novel called A Peculiar Peril. It's a book geared for younger readers, but it's just as wild and fascinating as the rest of his body of work. Let's get back into his conversation with Jordan Morris. I'd love to hear about A Peculiar
2: Peril. Uh, I remember reading that you're kind of expanding on a pre-existing world that you had created for an anthology series. Talk about the world that this is set in and what made you want to come back.
0: Well, it was kind of originally a revisionist Victorian world with this kind of progressive Dr. Thackeray T. Lambshead. And the first thing was supposed to be a little self-published chapbook of me and my friends writing some fake disease entries, because I'm a big fan of using non-fictional forms for fiction. I think that can be a lot of fun. But before I knew it, our friends had told other people. And before I knew it, Neil Gaiman was asking if he could be in this anthology and we had a 300-page book, <laughs> <laughs> and that eventually found first a, a small publisher and then a large publisher. And they were literally fake disease guide entries, but everyone had been very ingenious in using the format, so that they it didn't read like you were just reading a bunch of entries. There was a lot of like almost scene building in, in, in much of it, and it was just a lot of fun. So then we would do readings. And uh, we would have like a panel of people. We had one with with Neil Gaiman, with some other contributors where we're all dressed in lab coats (laughs) and uh, that would be hilarious because like if you were doing that in a in a Barnes and Noble or something people would be walking by who weren't there for the reading and they would hear the details of something like ballistic organ syndrome. <laughs> they wouldn't really, <laughs> they wouldn't really know what was, whether it was real or not. Yeah, they and they'd thinking also, to themselves, I hope I don't get that jeez. right exactly. Well ballistic organ syndrome, by the way was used in the defense of Constantinople uh, at one point but, but anyway so <laughs> so, um, so there was that and then there were the details of Dr. Lambshead's life. And that was set up as kind of a mystery across the two anthologies, like his wife had mysteriously died in a car crash. There have been other things that have been going on that, that were left uh, as unknowns. And I think it's because of that that my imagination eventually turned to his grandson, Jonathan Lambshead, and a situation in the novel where he inherits his grandfather's mansion after his grandfather's death. You know, the only way he can get his inheritance is by cataloging the cabinet of curiosities in the mansion. And, and then everything kind of goes nuts from there. <laughs> and he winds up finding this, this alt world, alt earth called Aurora, where, where Aleister Crowley rules a Franco-Germanic <laughs> empire with the head of Napoleon uh, as, his, as his military advisor, and, and on a pneumatic pedestal, no less, because he still has to be, he has to be above everyone
2: Well, <laughs> Well, naturally.
0: <laughs> so, so, so that's kind of where, where it came from. And uh, you can still find the disease guide, the fake disease guide, in a lot of medical libraries. Mm-hmm. Some places it's under humor. Some places it's actually with the real disease guides. And I get a lot of pleasure out of first-year medical students emailing me and saying that they just cracked up <laughs> when they were looking for a medical guide and they found this beside it. So,
2: I think the audience probably can guess this at this point in the conversation, but I'll just go ahead and say that A Peculiar Peril is really funny and it has a very high joke per page (laughs) ratio. It's legit impressive. And it seemed like this was really, really fun to write. I want (laughs) to ask, is it more fun than writing something that's a little more, you know, moody and horror derived? And the humor, was it... Was it part of the DNA all along, or did that kind of come out more naturally?
0: It's a really good question. It was naturally part of the the DNA. I always thought of it as this absurdist misadventure that would be kind of commenting on quests to some degree, because I just couldn't see writing a normal, serious quest. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, the writing of it was, was very intense, because when you have, as you say, that kind of high ratio of jokes and whatnot, and kind of like spinning plates where you're putting another one on top of another one, it's exhausting. (laughs) So, it was very fun to write, but I wrote it slower than a lot of things. Like if I wrote a chapter, I was done for the day. (laughs) I was exhausted. (laughs) And uh, in this particular case, I did obviously revise for certain things, but that kind of comic density was there from the very beginning and it was kind of the engine that drove things. And it was something that in some cases felt a little more serious and sometimes less so. Like Crowley is not serious, but the bombast of him feels familiar from the real world now. Right. And uh, so it was a joy to write. It was a different kind of satisfaction. Like I just finished Hummingbird Salamander, this eco thriller, and I had to channel a lot of dark things into it. But it, it was very cathartic to write. There was something satisfying in the catharsis. But here, yes, it was a joy. It was just an exhausting joy.
2: One of the very <laughs> weird, unexpected things in this book <laughs> is that the villains are kind of alternate universe versions of historical figures. You mentioned, yes, Aleister Crowley and uh, <laughs> Napoleon's head. Um, talk about using these historical figures as mm. villains, and why you thought to do that instead of just you know creating an all new evil wizard. Well,
0: you know, ironically, I don't usually like historical fiction where we meet, say, President Roosevelt or something, I I feel like there's there's people where you have this image in your head of what they're like. Mm -hmm. And it's hard then to encounter a novel that has a different image of what they're like. But because it was an all earth, so you're basically dealing with alternate versions of them, alternate personalities, that kind of gave me the in that I was able to write about them. Like I literally don't think I would have been able to write about those characters in a straightforward historical novel. But because they're existing in a place with this very wild magic and because they're transformed, that kind of gave me license. It also gave me license to play around with history. So I actually know a lot about European history and I know a lot about European literature and like the decadent movement and all these ridiculous writers, some of whom are actually in in the text like Alfred Cuban and then of course more famously and not ridiculously Kafka. But I didn't worry too much about adhering to Well, how would this split off from this on our Earth to create something in an alt-Earth like that? It was more like, oh, Napoleon's head is in it. Well, he's not at the same time period as Crowley, but that's okay because they've kind of like kept him in cold storage as a head. (laughs) (laughs) Charlemagne is fine because they've resurrected him from a bog, right? So, It all makes sense. It all makes sense. Yeah and Kafka is not a writer. That's the other thing I thought about is I thought about, well, what are they doing instead of what they were doing in this world? So Kafka is not really a big, big surprise, but Kafka is actually writing the magical scripts on a wall that defends Prague uh, instead of writing stories. <laughs> um, and he's amphibious, um, which I thought would just be, I mean, that just seems like a no brainer. Yeah. But yeah. So, so, so I think it's mostly because I have absorbed so much of this, history that that I was able to just kind of like come out with the absurdist versions. And I was waiting for reviewers to take me to task for that. But I think it must be working because they just kind of went with it.
2: Your um your book, Annihilation, was turned into a movie. And if the trades are to be believed, there's a more adaptations of your work coming. Yeah. And I'm just curious what it's like doing an adaptation of your work. I mean, a novel writing is... I imagine a pretty solitary endeavor, although, you know, you have editors and friends helping, obviously. But um, what is that like, taking something that you did largely on your own and then opening it up to a lot of other cooks?
0: Well, first of all, it's it's extremely surreal that it's even happening. The way my career went is I self-published my first collection after having published maybe 60 stories and selecting what I thought were the best ones. And then my early work, my early novels were published by small presses that were then eventually picked up by commercial presses, and now I'm published by FSG. So... So the idea back in the day, like if someone had come back in time and said, eventually there'll be a movie made of one of your books, I would have been like, I'm just working towards being on the remainder table in a chain bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> so so there's this unreal element to it still for me where I just cannot believe the stuff that got rejected for so long in many cases <laughs> before it got published. Is even potentially going to be on the screen. Then with regard to collaboration, famously on Annihilation, I did not have anything to do with it. But what I did do is I observed the process as much as possible from as many different angles as possible because I really learned very well from mimicry and I don't like involving myself until I know what it is I'm in, you know, what what makes sense, how I'm not getting in the way and things like that. So the thing that is happening now is that. Born has been optioned by AMC for a series, and uh, it's you know going out to potential showrunners. And there, I'll be more of a creative consultant, so I'll be creating like the bible, depending on what the showrunner actually has as a vision for the show, and and also potentially down the line, I might write an episode. Uh, but there again, I need to see someone else beginning to turn it into something. And then there's another thing where you know annihilation was <laughs> hilariously enough not something where i could track how that process worked because there's like literally like almost no lines of dialogue from the novel in the in the movie <laughs> right <laughs> so i couldn't exactly you know uh, track how that happened uh, so now now that process is ongoing and i will become gradually more submerged in this but at the end of the day i'm a novelist and i like to tell stories and so it's unlikely that i will become a screenplay writer or anything like that
2: I heard you on a podcast called, um, 10 things that scare me and this came out in, in 2019 and you mentioned that one of your fears is that art with a message can't reach people. You have the great example of someone who listens to the sex pistols and yet Mm. absorbs no values from the sex pistols. (laughs) So that was released last year and obviously a lot of things have happened since last year. how are you feeling now about including messages in your work?
0: Well, I'm not really trying to deal with the thing we're in now. I think, and a lot of writers are saying this, and I think wisely, it takes a long time to kind of like absorb the thing that's happening now. And so anyone who's feeling angst about not including that in their work, I think they should should not not worry about it. It's It's not something for fiction writers right away. It's something that comes out later. But with regard to the messaging, like Dead Astronauts, the last uh, novel I had out was the direct result in some ways of talking to a radical environmentalism class and somebody raised their hand and said, well, I really liked Annihilation, but I would have appreciated a more direct environmental book, a more direct message. And so I took that as kind of a challenge, regardless of whether I feel like it will change minds. I thought that the message I was getting, and I got this a couple of times from the younger generation, is that they wanted something more didactic, and maybe if it was more didactic, it would have more of an impact. You know, I've always been somebody who wants to lead you into something where you begin to think about it, not throw it in your face. But Dead Astronauts is much more didactic, and the way I made up for that is by being more poetic at the same time to kind of distill the didactic quality. And Hummingbird Salamander is another vehicle for that. And it's an eco thriller coming out next year where a woman living a very ordinary life receives something very extraordinary from a dead woman and is plunged into a whirlpool of wildlife trafficking and uh, eco-terrorism, where again, it allows me to directly deal with these things. And so I I think the jury's out on whether how direct this influence is, but even on annihilation, I will say that, especially in the last couple of years, there have been a lot of people who have come up to me and said, well, not during the coronavirus, maybe emailed (laughs) during the coronavirus, but (laughs) but they have- They told you from six
2: feet away. They told
0: me from afar, (laughs) very afar, (laughs) but um, that they, they have young people going into environmental science is the biggest one that I get. And then the subsidiary thing that happens, which is because I talk about The Yard on Twitter, the number of people every week who say, I stopped using herbicides and pesticides or I started planting native plants for the wildlife or, or things like that. So it didn't really show up on that show, but there's this subsidiary thing where the novels are the vehicle. The fact that people, a lot of people read them is the vehicle for being able to kind of espouse the same values in the non-fictional world, and that's maybe where the influence comes from. Uh, so, so you can't say the novel isn't part of it, because without the novels, no one would be listening to me. They probably shouldn't be listening to me anyway, especially <laughs> after reading about giant talking marmots. You know,
2: you mentioned Twitter. I think this is a good segue into talking about your, your Twitter presence, which I am a, a big fan of. Well, I recommend everybody follow Vandermeer. <laughs> uh, and you, you have a lot of... Wildlife photography on there, just uh, things I imagine you're seeing around your house and your yard, yeah. and yeah. And every time I see a new animal pop up, I'm like, Ah, Vandermeer is going to turn that into a monster. I just know it. <laughs> um, talk about being online. I think a lot of mm. authors um, aren't, or at least a lot of my favorite authors are not mm. very online. But yeah, you always seem to have a good stream of jokes and observations and, mm. and talking with fans. Yeah. Why is that something you make time for in your day? Early on, I really
0: had no choice. Like I said, I, I came out of small press. And so I was my own publicist. I was the person going out and talking to bookstores and whatnot a lot of the time. And in fact, I've had good relationships with people at indie bookstores for a long time because of that. But part and parcel of that is that I've, I've had to kind of put myself out there. And, and I, f- I feel like... It's been part of the fact that, especially early on, what I was writing was very surreal. So, it wasn't easy to describe in like a line or something. So, I had to put in that extra effort. And I think that it just naturally then, it felt natural to continue that kind of relationship through Twitter and and Facebook, Uh, but also to have fun with it. I I really don't want to be pitching you my novel 24-7. I want to be engaging in a kind of creative play and having a conversation with people. And what's really hilarious to me is when I started posting <laughs> pictures from the yard and animals, I thought for sure I would lose thousands of followers because <laughs> it had been mostly like book recommendations before that. And instead I'm, I'm getting, I think I have 46,000 followers now and that's like 30,000 more than two years ago when I started <laughs> posting the yard photos. So that was like astonishing to me uh, that people would care and uh, so now it's just like finding the right balance. Like I know some days I post too many photos of baby raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> you can never have
2: too many photos of baby raccoons.
0: I, or, I dispute that premise. <laughs> or like, but but then sometimes things kind of suggest story. Like last week when I discovered that I there's this rabbit called the with the hashtag is the the traitor Jesse Bun <laughs> because this <laughs> traitor was eating my wildflowers. But then last week, as I was videoing the bunny, I realized that it was not the same bunny that I had just seen in the front yard and that I had been talking to multiple rabbits this entire time. <laughs> and uh, so, so there's things like that, that that also feed back into the fiction. Like that made something click in my head about a story. And knowing the individual animals in the yard, the individual raccoons, and, you know, this house is ridiculous. It's like a tree house with so many windows that you're always seeing the lives of the wildlife around you. And then the trail cam at night. So those personalities, I find, slip into like the talking animals in peculiar peril, but also sometimes into some of the humor, human characters as well, because they are individuals and there's something that that captures the imagination. So So it becomes this kind of amazing loop of things where, yeah, I'm kind of entertaining people, but I'm also in a way beginning to write.
2: It must be interesting to be doing your book tour for your new book virtually (laughs) in the time of a pandemic. I was wondering what that was like for you. Um, Do you miss book signings and comic cons or is, you know, doing these interviews from the comfort of your home a plus to you?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's um, influenced by the fact that I did a whirlwind tour in December of last year for Dead Astronauts, (laughs) where I hit like seven or eight cities in like two weeks. (laughs) and uh, and then went from that to this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I think it's, it's weird because I like doing live events a lot, but I'm not an introvert, so they kind of drain me. I don't get energy from them. So, I thought it would be fine doing things remotely, but it turns out that I really, I really like that live audience reaction. Like even for serious books, I usually tell funny anecdotes ahead of time or I, I, I read a funny bit. And so, you usually get some kind of reaction from that unless you have really tanked. (laughs) And so, I really do miss that. And I find that things like Zoom actually, in some ways, exhaust me more like or exhaust me in a different way. Uh, At the same time, it has opened up so many opportunities, I think. People who are introverts and don't tour much or don't like doing those things probably feel a lot freer and and more liberated doing something on Zoom. So I don't know. It's something you're still like, still in the middle of, of figuring out. But I, I did a Zoom thing uh, yesterday where I got to see some writers I really like and have known for a while. And it was like, this is just an excuse to see old friends that I can't see otherwise, you know?
2: <laughs> so. Well, Jeff Vandermeer, thank you so much for talking to us on Bullseye.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Jeff Vandermeer. His newest book, A Peculiar Peril, is on sale now at independent bookstores all over the country. Jordan Morris, who conducted the interview, also has a new thing out. He's a writer on the brand new Disney Plus Space Muppet talk show, Earth to Ned. So go check that out. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun, in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where our coworker Kira just installed fun disco lights in her bedroom. And now all of her video conferences totally rule. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, Jesus Ambrosio, and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by the Go team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of maximumfun.org and is distributed by NPR.